If you'd turn now uh, to the second book, the second letter to the, that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, we'll turn to the second chapter and a couple of verses this morning, uh, verses 13 and 14, and, and a message I've simply entitled, Thank for, Thankful for You. Have you ever considered it a duty, really an obligation, to be thankful for the rest of the body of Christ? I can tell you that going and, and spending time with these precious people on that island, it made me very thankful for the body of Christ because it was a, a work of the body of Christ that enabled us to be there. It wasn't just Pastor Jeff. Uh, it wasn't just the team that was with. It was the whole body of Christ that was able to, to enable that time of blessing for the people that were there. And we see that here Would you join me in prayer? We'll look at these two verses and then uh, dig in in our study. Father, we thank you again for the wonderful ministry of your word to our hearts. And we pray that as we read these verses and study them, that you would translate these timeless principles uh, into actionable work in our life. We thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do. Bless it now as your word goes forth. In Jesus' name, amen. First word there, again, but, always refers to something else. In this case, it's a contrast to the unbelievers that are going to have a really difficult time during that day of the Lord. So he switches from those who know the Lord or don't know the Lord to those that do. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. All ministry, every trip, every mission trip, everything we do, all that this church ever will be is really for one purpose, and that is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not for the name of Calvary Chapel of South Bay. It's not for the name of Christendom in general. It is for the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory that we do all things. That one family of God that we are, Ephesians 4, so very clear. There is one church. There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one hope. There is one baptism. That one body that John chapter 17, Jesus in his high priestly prayer praying for us in John 17, said, I would, Father, that they were one like you and I are one. There's one church with one purpose, with one goal. Many manifestations of how that work gets done and many wonderful places that that happens. But there is a a consistency that we must have to the work that God has called the church to do in general in our world. We have an obligation then to be thankful for one another because every last person who names the name of Christ, who genuinely believes, who is a child of God, is part of this family that we are in. And thereby we should be giving thanks for the body of Christ. As it was in Cartagena, we had no idea that this was going to happen. But there in Cartagena, there's not a lot going on as far as the church is concerned. So when people found out that we were going to have a conference and that they could come and that conference was free, 
a lot of the local churches that are not Calvary chapels, are not non-denominational, but denominational churches. We had Baptists, we had Nazarenes, we even had a Seventh-day Adventist pastor come. We had all these, these pieces of the body of Christ, and though we might differ in some doctrinal issues, we might even differ kind of in, in, in our view of, of some major doctrines. We are to enact the, the ministry that we have to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, and of course we want you to come. Of course we want you to be blessed. We want you to be encouraged. And so Paul says, look, I give thanks for those beloved of the Lord. You see, for us, for you, for me, there is, there is zero that we bring to the table as far as the gospel is concerned. Every last one in here, if you, if you are saved, you are saved by the grace of God through faith. Amen? It's not anything that you did. It's not anything that I did. It's not something that we are. It is what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. And so because of that, we're a big, huge family. And we should be thankful for each other. Because what we really see in the family of God is the grace of God at work. And does that faith in you stimulate you to be thankful for other people? Does it produce in your life a deep, abiding love? Notice they're called beloved here. Brethren, beloved of the Lord. He first uses the word brethren. And that's not, it doesn't mean simply men. It means the body of Christ drawn together by the grace of God. He says, brethren. And he basically says to them, what kind of love do you have? Because you are beloved of the Lord. Is that love that the Lord has loved you with, is that coming out of your ministry? Is that coming out of your life? Is that visible in the church? You know, so often we get hung up on doctrinal distinctives that we forget the distinctive of distinctives is the way we love each other. That's the one thing that should mark every church. And while we have discussions about other points of doctrine, there should never be a discussion about the love of God. Amen? Amen. You either have it or you don't. You either believe it or you don't. You see, all believers should possess the same kind of love that you have been saved with. What kind of love is that? It's unadulterated. It it, it is unconditional. It is undiminished love that came first from God. God first loved us. And He has loved us eternally. When, When you think about how God loves you, we're supposed to love others that same way. That's why John 13 plainly declares for us, there in verse 35, by this, by this, by this one thing, all will know that you are my disciples if, circle it, you have love one for another. That's how everyone will know, believers and unbelievers. You see, an unloving church, I believe, is an unchristlike church. I believe if we lose that distinctive, 
then the very thing that Paul warned the church at Corinth and then spoke to the church at Ephesus about in the book of Revelation becomes very visible. We're supposed to be loving. What kind of love is that? You you see, the Jewish people knew that kind of love because Jeremiah told them about it. He says, "I, I have loved you with an everlasting love there in Jeremiah 31. And therefore, with my loving kindness, I have drawn you. You see, when we come to faith in Christ, we come because he loves us. It's not simply because we fear that he's going to punish us eternally, but we know the other side of that, that he loves us. Do you have that kind of love? Do you love others that way? Can you honestly say that you have an unconditional love towards people? Unconditional love is tough, isn't it? Have you ever thought about how tough you were to love before you met Jesus? I was tough. I was not easy to love. I put lots of stripes on Jesus' back personally. He took some stripes for me. But God loves us that way. And in fact, John there in the beginning of chapter 13, actually speaking to the disciples, knew that his hour had come, and he simply said to them, that, look, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In other words, he loved them with his life. That's why he could say, greater love hath no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friend. Do you have that kind of love? Because it's essential for us to have the kind of witness that we're supposed to have. Because if we can't love each other, we got no chance at loving people in the world. If we can't love each other, we have no chance of loving people in the world. Because if we can't love people with whom we share the grace of God how will we ever share that kind of love with somebody with whom we disagree? We don't see things the way they do. It is that love that does that work. Do you have it? You see, here's the deal. Your salvation had an eternal start date. Now we're going to be looking at the book of Genesis tonight. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. I love that verse. In the beginning, God. Before everything was, before the universe and all that's in it was created, God. And it was that God in that eternal state that first loved you. Do you ever think about that? Your salvation has an eternal start date. It didn't start when you said yes to Jesus. Matter of fact, Scripture plainly declares that while we were yet actively sinning, Christ died for the ungodly. Before you were ever saved, Jesus loved you. Matter of fact, before you were ever born, Jesus loved you. That's why all those beautiful promises that we see in Scripture. You see, God has chosen you. God has selected you. God has called you. He's brought you by His foreknowledge into this wonderful relationship. He has always done His part. There was never a time in in the course of the history of the universe that God did not love you. Have you ever thought of it that way? God's love has an eternal start date. 
It didn't start when you were born, when you became, uh, in, in, in our sense, uh, a human being. God has loved you from time past. And so that puts that love in a very different perspective. I personally believe the scripture is fairly clear. Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 3, Revelation chapter 22. There's a book of life. And I believe every name starts in it. Chapter 3 says, he who overcomes, I will not blot out his name from the book. It sounds like the name's in there to start with. He's loved you with an everlasting love. Chapter 22 says, I'll not take his part away from the book of life. Those that love the Lord. But see, there's another side of this. You have to want what God wants for you. You have to desire what his plans are. If you have children, you know these things. You can see them in a minor way. Because all of us who are parents, we, we, if you talk to any parent, they always want better for their children than they wanted for themselves. Almost without exception. God is very much like that. He wants his very best. Now imagine that you were perfect. You cannot give something more perfect than perfection to your children. Amen? So God, being perfect, wants exactly that for his kids. And so he says, I want you to experience my perfect love. I want you to have all of me. I want you to be lacking nothing. You see, from God's perspective, he's always loved us. He loved King David. King David was a mess with a capital M, amen? His life didn't start out so great. He's the lunch boy. The brothers are in the Valley of Elah. They're getting ready to fight this battle. The Philistines on one side, the Israelites on the other. And every morning, Goliath comes out and shouts down the God of the Israelites. And one by one, it's like, well, we don't know who to send. And David comes out, and the brothers disrespect him and say, what are you doing? Get back and feed the sheep. He says, oh, no. He says, my God has delivered me from the mouth of the lion and the mouth of the bear, and he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. That kind of, can you imagine that type of faith? A nine-foot-tall Philistine. Here's David, the lunch boy for the brothers. And God does what God promised to do and did deliver him. That became King David. But King David took that power back to the city of Zion. Below the southern wall of the Temple Mount, his home stared up at the Temple Mount. Be like if you lived next door to the church. And it was from there that David saw Bathsheba. And it was from there that David committed adultery with Bathsheba and produced a child with Bathsheba. 
and then murdered her husband. He was a thief, a liar, an adulterer, and a murderer. And about David, God said, he is a man after my own heart. That's the love of God, folks. Because only the love of God could reconcile that kind of life. And it was that David that said this in 2 Samuel 12, verse 23, speaking of that child born in adultery, who then dies... And David says, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. That's a God who loved that baby in eternity. That's the kind of love that God has. You see, you might be tempted to say, well, that baby born to that couple? No wonder it died. That's the legalist in us. Punish Bathsheba, punish David. Should have never been born anyway. But God welcomed that child into the presence of the Lord. Brothers and sisters have that kind of eternal love. You see, that's God's persistent desire. Ephesians 1 says he chose us before the foundation of the world. For what? For salvation. He chose us for salvation. He chose us before we chose him. But there's another side of that. God can choose you, but you still have to say yes. You can want things for your children, but they have to want them for themselves. So God's saying, look, I I had an eternal start date. By his stripes are we healed. But we have to believe in those stripes. We have to commit ourselves to the, to the life of faith, to the transformed life. And basically what's going on here is we're seeing two, two co-equal dynamics. The divine, eternal start date for God's love. From the human, you have to trust by the provision of faith, that gift that's given to you. You have to say yes to salvation in Jesus Christ. You see, so though God loved you from the, the, the beginning of eternity, you still have to love him back. That's your part. As believers, as saints, notice it says for sanctification, we've been set apart. That's what that word means. It means separated. And in this case, separated unto God, away from the world. So I shared with you before, I'm actually St. Jeff of Lomita. <laughs> Flip, you, you freak people out. Tell them, you know, you're Saint so-and-so and then give them your town that you live in. You are. Scripture says so. You are a saint. You know, we think of saints as the apostles or, you know, some, you know, very spiritual person. But Scripture says we are saints. And in fact, there's a beginning of your sanctification. That's when you say yes to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is imparted into you. You have that first experience with God, and God puts the Holy Spirit in you as a dwelling place and as a reminder and as a convictor of sin and righteousness and as a token of his love, his desire to love you and and to see you through this journey called sanctification. He puts the Holy Spirit in you. But that's not where it ends. 
Because when you give your life to Christ, you are not instantaneously completely transformed. That part is progressive. So your sanctification, though it has a start date, continues to get better until you go home with Jesus. And one day it's going to end in the glorification. You're going to actually be like Jesus. And by the way, Scripture says that. It's not my opinion. It's what Scripture says. One day we are going to be like him. Because we've actually been called to glory. You you see, our time here on this earth is meant to be an opportunity for us to say yes to God's persistent desire. He desires that all men, he's not slack. 2 Peter 3, 9 says he's not slack concerning his promises. What was his promise? That before the foundation of the world, I have loved you. He's not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness. In other words, he's not just messing with us. He's not just, you know, going to let you live out your life and then, sorry. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's a beautiful picture of how long-suffering his love is. Because most of the time, we give him new reasons to not love us every day, don't we? I was on a plane, I'm flying back yesterday, and we had to fly from Cartagena to Panama and from Panama back to Los Angeles. And there's a couple of things I I don't like. The the 850th time someone bumps me because I had an aisle seat, I'm not thinking about, oh, God bless you, brother. (laughs) I'm kind of thinking of putting my leg out, you know, it's just like, and I got to repent of that. It's like, oh, they're, they just, they're wobbling because they're not used to walking down plain aisles and they're kind of narrow. But, but we all have those things in our life where the Lord is still redeeming this ugly old flesh, amen? amen. We need to remember that. God's persistent desire is that all men come to know him. So he's changing you into the image of Jesus so people can see him. It's the way it works because we have been called to glory. God has a divine program for all of this. And notice it says here in verse 14, for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about the church obtaining the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's hard to wrap your head around, I understand. Because you think of yourself, I think of myself, we think of each other, we're going, that that ain't happening. But it is going to happen. One day you're going to step out of time and into eternity and you're going to be glorified. Mind-boggling. That's why we preach Christ crucified. That's, that's why we, we, we get that picture in Romans 1 to where, where we start out as, as unbelievers and we're against God and we're worshiping the wrong thing. Very often the creation itself created things. But the love of God comes into our life. And with that holy calling of 2 Timothy 1.9, not according, but his own purpose and that grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus. And all of a sudden, things start to change. I, I met a guy while I was in Cartagena. And I got a little bit of his story from one of the brothers down there. And he was sharing with me about what his life was. He was a drug runner for one of the cartels. 
And I'm not giving his name nor the cartel so that no one can figure out who he is. We say he's a drugger. He's a mule. And he says his whole childhood, from the time he was eight years old, was spent murdering people. An eight-year-old with a gun. Bags of drugs, running them from town to town. Getting them near the border to boats that people would take out to the ocean to meet another boat so they could come north normally to the U.S. He said by the time he was 15 years old, he can remember at least 20 people that he murdered. That was how he stayed alive. But then came Jesus. He's got all kinds of scars from being beat up. His face looks like a mess. But he has the biggest smile from Jesus. He's transformed. He's a new man. He's a new creation in Christ. And if you were to meet him and he told you none of his story, you would have zero idea that that was his life. Because there was a glory of the Lord that had already been put on him. Now imagine that there's going to be the literal glory of the Lord put on every last one of us when we get to heaven. Oh, hallelujah. But let's start now because we've been called to glory. And the way this passage ends brings us to the understanding that the gospel still calls to as many as would receive him. You know, sometimes people went, well, am I elect? Am I chosen? D.L. Moody had it right. He said, the whosoever wills are the elect, and the whosoever wants are the unelect. It's not that complex. Now, we make it into a huge doctrinal issue, but God's been calling from eternity past, and when you say yes, you're the elect. You can know that you're chosen. That gospel, that Jesus Christ alone paid the price for your sin, that he was buried, he rose again. The very simple gospel there of 1 Corinthians 15. It's actually that truth that Satan binds there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. That's the truth that the enemy tries to hide. As I was sharing in Colombia, it's amazing how simple the truth of the gospel is and how complex people can make it in an attempt to explain it. Jesus Christ, God's own son, died on Calvary's cross. He was buried in the grave. He was raised three days later, and he lives forevermore. And if you believe on his name, you'll be saved. Amen? That's the gospel. That is the gospel. And that gospel still calls today. It's not the gospel of a group. It's not the gospel of a church. It's not the gospel of a movement. It's not the gospel of a denomination. It's not the gospel of a theologic understanding. It is the simple gospel that calls today. That is how men become saved. That is how humanity becomes saved. It's by believing the gospel. And we need to keep that part simple. Yes, of course we study theology. 
We want to know God as best as we possibly can. But we want to keep the gospel simple. We don't want to complicate it. Because the moment you add something else to the gospel, you're actually preaching another gospel. If it becomes a gospel of work, including faith becoming a new kind of work, well, you've got to have the right kind of faith, brother. No, it's childlike faith. And by the way, that's what Jesus said. That's why he took a child, plopped him in the middle of the disciples, used him as an example, and says, unless you become as one of these, you will not see the kingdom of God. He wasn't saying you need to act like a child. He's saying you need to have childlike faith to believe a childlike gospel because that's still how people become Christians. That's how they become saved. It's still calling out. And when we do that, we can be thankful for each other and we certainly will be thankful for our king, for his glory, for the wonderful things that he will do with us. Would you stand with me as the worship team comes back out? I want to give you a little heavenly perspective from 2 Corinthians 4. For our light affliction in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 4, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary but the things which are not seen are eternal. Family, beloved, we're on an eternal mission. It's a mission that begins, it has a start date in this life when you say yes to Jesus, but from God's perspective, it began in time past before the world was created. And that mission is for us to tell other people about Jesus so that they can be saved. And once they're saved, they join the brethren that Paul's talking about in this passage, which makes them family, which makes us family. And we join together in this glorious thing called the work of the gospel around the world. And I want to share with you this morning, look, we're going to keep moving. As a church, I don't know how much time is left, and there are people that don't know Jesus today. So we're going to do what Jesus said, that's to seek and save them who are lost. I can't save them, you can't save them, but we can preach the only gospel that can. And we're going to keep doing that. So I pray as a family that we have that as a goal. It's an eternal goal. And then be thankful for everyone else who's helping. And as we do that, great effect for the kingdom. If you're here today, and maybe you don't know the Lord, Maybe you're in the multi-purpose room or, or maybe the overflow room and, and you don't know Jesus. We have a prayer team in our prayer room and they would love to sit down and talk with you and share that good news of the gospel with you again. I've already done that, but they will do it again. And then tell you how to begin to walk with them. But maybe you're here today and you know the Lord, but there's not much fruit in your life. And maybe you want to have fruit in your life. You want to see people come to faith in Christ. Go be prayed for. Go ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to empower you to do great things for God. Because we are a family. And we have some work to do while we're still here. So let's get busy about that work. Amen.
Father, thank you for this incredible congregation. Lord, for the wonderful things that you're doing uh, through them, through us, as we serve you together. And I want to pray if there's anyone here that does not know you, that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would head to that prayer room and, and pray that prayer of faith, believing that you, Jesus, are the only way, the only truth in life. And if we'll ask, you'll forgive our sin and write our name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Would you please do that for anyone who is here today that doesn't know you? And maybe for those that are wondering what their life's all about, God, would you give them vision? Would you cause them to walk with you in a new and a fresh way? To get busy about our Father's business, which is seeing people come to faith. Lord, and sharing that wonderful discipleship to make disciples of all nations. God, we love you. We thank you for what you're doing in this church and in our own lives personally. Bless us, Lord. May we be a blessing to you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.